Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. It's Joshua Nicholson. Today's episode is going to be on zero trust. Zero trust is a new paradigm of thinking, a new model of thinking for locking down and securing in environments. But before we do that, we're going to get into our threat intelligence report from our sponsor, Deep Seas, with Aaron Beerlin. Aaron, take it away. Thank you, Josh. Just a few things that have come across the CTI desk here at Deep Seas. The biggest one being the report that was released by U.S. intelligence agencies as well as 5i International Partners regarding Russia's snake malware, which is a peer-to-peer network malware that infected several devices, including diplomatic missions, areas within NATO, uh, research and development firms, and was a very considerable part of the Turla framework that was used by Russian cyber threat actors. Specifically, snake malware has been attributed to Russia's Federal Security Service Center 16 and their military unit 713. which is more commonly known as Berserk Bear. This comprehensive malware breakdown was a huge blow to Russian cyber operations in the concept that it gave away one of their most successful implants that they had been using for years to conduct cyber espionage. This is the type of implant that we see nation state threat actors use where they can sit on a system for even years just waiting in the event that they need to start grabbing data. So this was a very big effort that was conducted by several intelligence agencies, but also had a major effect in defending networks, especially networks within Ukraine and other networks within the NATO environment. So we were able to release a report on that, which was great. And there are a lot of different TTPs that are attributed to it, as well as mitigations that were recommended and even some scanner technology that was included in that report. In addition to that, There's also, we've discussed several times on the show about the paper cut remote code exploitation vulnerability that was reported about a month ago. Specifically, it was a CVE 2023-27350. A researcher on 4 May put out a report that showed a proof of concept of a remote code execution that would be able to bypass the current mitigations for unpatched servers. With that being released out, obviously we see that it's only going to take a matter of days and we'll let, and there's likely going to be active exploitation. But using this proof of concept, obviously patching is the recommendation that is given at all times, but in the event that you can't and you have to run with a mitigation, there's always going to be exploits being developed that are going to attempt at their best to avoid this mitigation. And finally, cybersecurity firm Dragos reported this week that a threat actor was able to attempt to compromise and 
attempt to extort their executives on their network using a new hire lure. So they were able, the threat actors were able to get a hold of the new hire's credentials, get onto the network that way, and then attempt some lateral movement as well as some privilege escalation uh, that appeared to be caught pretty early on the Dragos network. But they were making attempts to extort executives by sharing things like claiming that they had copies of their family's emails and addresses as a method to try to extort these executives into paying a ransom or paying some sort of fee so the data wouldn't be leaked. And this is something that we are seeing occur. We do have clients that regularly ask for monitoring and security when it comes to their executives due to not only threat actors like ransomware actors wanting to use this as a way to extort their victims, but also hacktivists releasing that type of information to attempt to create an unsafe environment and try to affect some sort of decision making within the executive branch. So this is something that we're continually always trying to monitor and figure out ways that we can help protect not only the employees of an organization, the executives of an organization, but the human element uh, that can come along with it. And with a growing effect where cyber has realized that physical outcomes is something that can be affected within cyberspace, whether it was, as we reported last week, the city of Dallas having to shut down operations, resulting in slower response times by their emergency departments. This is something that cyberspace is becoming very kinetic and becoming very active. But that is our threat intelligence brief for this week. Back to you, Josh. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that. We're going to concentrate on zero trust. And I have joining us today as an expert in the field. We have Gordon Lawson, who brings years of experience and knowledge into the discussion. He is currently the CEO of Conceal.io. Gordon has a great deal of knowledge implementing these zero trust strategies with some of the largest organizations in the world. And together, we're going to explore the concept of zero trust, its benefits, its challenges, and how it will differ from the traditional security models. We'll also discuss the future of Zero Trust and how it's shaping the landscape of cybersecurity. Gordon Lawson is the CEO of Conceal. He's spent the last 20 years in the physical and cybersecurity space. He's focused on SaaS optimization and global enterprise business development. He was previously president at Rangeforce, a cyber training platform company, and the senior VP of global sales at CoFence through their $400 million acquisition by BlackRock in 2018. Before corporate life, Gordon served as a U.S. Naval officer with operational deployments in the Middle East and Africa. He was assigned to Special Operations Command, the 3rd Marine, Marine Corps Air and Naval Gun Liaison Company, Anglico, and the Defense Intelligence Agency. He is a graduate of the Air Force Command and Staff College and the Army Airborne School. Gordon holds a Bachelor's of Science in Political Science from the U.S. Naval Academy and MBA from George Washington University. Well, welcome to the show, Gordon. It's really great to have you. Thanks, Josh. I may have to shorten up that biography a little bit. It gets a little wordy, but thank you for the kind words. It does, but it definitely shows your breadth of experience. And you and I know each other. We were both on the senior management team at CoFence. You were the senior VP of sales. I was the senior VP of professional services. I got to see you in action for all those years. I really appreciate everything you did in the past, and I'm glad to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Josh, and always it's always fun to reconnect here. Yeah, absolutely. 
And one thing about zero trust, I hear a lot about this today. I, it's almost in the same methodology you hear about AI and ML. It's in many ways seems like an abstract term that people are trying to get their arms around. I wanted to focus this show on it because, A, I think it's a very important paradigm that everybody should be adopting and should be looking at, but it's not that cut and dry and easy. There's new terms, there's new things you have to learn. So I found out just doing the research. So that apparently in 1994 is when the term zero trust was first coined wow. by a guy named Stephen Paul Marsh and his doctoral thesis on computer security at the University of Sterling. And Marsh's work studied trust as something finite that could be described mathematically, asserting that the concept of trust transcends human factors such as morality, ethics, law, justice, and judgment. First of all, before we start to get into it and how Conceal was doing it, I want to just define what zero trust here is. It says, instead of assuming everything behind the corporate firewall is safe, the zero trust model assumes a breach and verifies each request as though it originates from an open network. And regardless of whether the request originates or what resources it accesses, zero trust teaches us to never trust but always verify. Every access request is fully authenticated, authorized, and encrypted before granted access. Micro-segmentation and least privileged access principles are applied to minimize lateral movement. And then rich intelligence and analytics are used to detect and respond to anomalies in real time. So Gordon, given the definition of zero trust, you've been in this field. I've been in the cybersecurity field in multiple dis disciplines, but it seems you've been really focused in this area. But what can you tell us on zero trust and how your company is helping to drive adoption and, and so forth? No, I'm happy to start there. But look, actually, let me start with a quick story that I just heard last night that I think is a great illustration of the importance of this. So I was with a cybersecurity team, a big company last night, and we we're having dinner. And they were talking about when they do a pen test and the, the protocols are. Now there's, as you, I know you've done these before where you have folks that will drop USB drives. In this particular case, they had someone that was putting a, uh, had come in with the cleaning crew, had put a router on a conference table and basically owned the network that way. And they were able to detect these in a very quick amount of time. The final scenario that they went through involved the head of security architecture. He was, he had to play a role as the inside threat. So he had the keys to the kingdom, right? And which is, and when he talked to CISO, he's like, hey, if I go do this, I'm going to lose credibility with the team because I'm going to tell these guys how to get into the network. And the CISO's response was, "How you could be an insider threat or someone on your team could be an insider threat. So why should we not train for this scenario? And so I think this is a great illustration of zero trust is important because, of course, I think when we run a company or we're executives in a company, we want to believe that everyone is going to be have the best interest of the company at heart. And I think most people do. But you're going to have either bad actors maybe do something on purpose, or you're going to have employees that click on things that could cause a real problem. And so that's when I think about your zero trust, I think about there's all these vectors and the attack surface is getting larger. And we have to, as a community, cyber community, keep track of those and plan for those. And I think you had another great part of your introduction, Josh, where you said it's about the anomalies. So it's important to set that baseline. Hey, what is a what is the environment supposed to look like? You got to have that baseline. But when those anomalies hit, now we have to action or mediate on them quickly. And so that just sharing that story, transitioning a little bit to what we do at Conceal. Conceal, we're protecting at the browser level. 
You can, depending on who you talk to, 70, 90% of attacks come through the browser, obviously a lot through email, but it's not just email anymore. It's other applications, WhatsApp, Slack, LinkedIn, the applications that folks will use in the course of their daily work. And the way that a threat actor is going to get into those applications and, and give you something to click on is going to be really, it's getting more and more sophisticated. And even though people may not be uh, purposely doing something nefarious, the, no amount of training is going to stop them from clicking on something bad. It's going to happen. Credit theft is going to happen. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect against those unknown threats at the browser level. We scan every URL across every application. If something is malicious, suspicious, or unknown, especially those unknowns, we're going to put it to isolation. And we're going to get those that telemetry back to the service provider, to the SOC, to help really be a part of that zero trust architecture. But I know that's a, that, that was a lot there to digest, but that's the way we're approaching it. And it's the ways that I'm thinking about it as we talk to our customers. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think one of the areas that we keep missing is we just keep patching browsers all the time. And yes, the desktop edge in the browser seems to be the number one vector point there. I think it overlooked significantly. I think most of the time, cybersecurity people look at hardened fire through or something with a no script plugin. So no JavaScript will run that's malicious on it. But one key point you just made that I think is important is that in the zero trust, it doesn't mean that I personally do not trust you. If I was your employee, it's not right. I personally trust my ethics or my values you, because my credentials can be stolen by an attacker. So it's the trust of that account, not necessarily the trust of the person, but it could apply from an insider threat perspective to the trust of that person. But when some people hear it, they hear zero trust. What do you mean? You're not trusting your people? Are you monitoring your people? Does that what it's mean? I had one person think zero trust meant you didn't trust any of your employees. So you like monitored all their access and everything. And that could be the furthest from the truth. I mean, it depends, I think, on the corporate culture and the corporate environment. But obviously, the crown jewels of our clients and your clients, they live in these environments. And you, in, we're all in the cloud now, too, which has its own set of vulnerabilities, you, you, you steal the wrong person's credentials and bad things are going to happen. You're going to get owned. So that that vector by itself implies that it has to be the right people accessing the right systems. There has to be multi-factor authentication. There has to be all the other hygiene things that, that I think the vast majority of companies are now starting to employ. But even with all of those pieces in place, a sophisticated threat actor who studies these techniques all the time and is doing reconnaissance that it's really tough to defend against it. And so I feel, I know this gets said a lot, but we have to be right all the time. They just have to be right once. And we have to get keep getting smarter and smarter about how we defend across that attack surface. No, absolutely. And I think there's what there's three main pillars I see to zero trust is one is verify explicitly, always authenticate authorized based on available data points, including users, including user identity, location, device health, service or workload, data classification and anomalies. So, uh, number two pillar is use least privileged access, limit user access with just in time and just enough access, risk-based adaptive policies, data protection to help secure data and improve productivity. And then the third pillar here is assume breach, verify end-to-end -end encryption, use analytics to, guide, to gain visibility, detect threats and improve defenses. And so I think it's more than just like, for instance, one, one thing we were talking about zero trust is in VPN. When you VPN into a network for the longest time, you're, that desktop is operating just like any other desktop on that network. It is full reign. It's considered on that local network. 
And once you're in, you're in. You may have active directory permission that gives you access, but there is no further stepped up authentication. Is that person coming in at a certain time? And I was just in a big malware intrusion we had to respond to on a customer. And they came through a Fortinet firewall. They exploited a vulnerability on the firewall and were on that local layer three network inside. There was no indication, no bells went off. People were VPN in at three in the morning. So even those different attributes weren't taken into effect. And you could see where even management said, why doesn't it authenticate again here? Why isn't there MFA on that? Once you're inside the network, there really isn't MFA anymore for a lot of things. Everybody's been concentrating for the last several years, of the last decade, deploying MFA on external authorization. But once you're in, right? Yeah. The the recent case, and I know it's not apples to apples here, but the recent case of the National Guardsman and the security breach. And I did some appearances about this and folks were asking me like, how the heck does this guy get access? I was like, once you have, as being a veteran shelf, once you have that TSCI access and you're an IT guy and you're an intelligence, you have access to the crown jewels. And so now I'm sure that's being reviewed now. And some of these policies and permissions that we've used in the corporate world, I'm sure they're being implemented on the DOD side, but I think it's a great example. You, you, once someone's on the network, they're on the network. Once someone's been blessed to go do intelligence work on a network at the high, on the high, at the highest classifications, they're in and they can traverse laterally and get access to this stuff. There's other, now there's other security protocol issues there with him being able to post it on Discord. But this is just the world we live in. It's a lot of data. A lot of folks are going to have access to that data just because of business continuity issues. And, and it's a problem that really, really I feel for CISOs. They got to get their arms around this. And the bigger the company, the worse it is. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that, a lot of people go, how does this 21-year-old get access to it? And you're like, you have the clearance, you're in the role. But this is the second time we've had with Snowden. Now, this is the second time we've had a sysadmin have unrestricted access and be able to breach. It doesn't seem to be the intelligence officers that are breaching the data, but it's the sysadmins that are able to override the system security and do things that normally you wouldn't. And you would figure that kind of stuff would be monitored. I always figured there would be step off authorization, right? And especially if I think he printed the documents off and then shoved them oh. in his hands and walked off is what I heard. And then- Yeah, but who? But think about who's configuring the printers for the classified systems, Yeah, the IT admin. So of course he knows how to print it out and could walk out with it. But I think it's a great example of Obviously, the consequences may not be as severe in the corporate world. They certainly can be if you're being held up for eight or nine figures of ransomware. But this is a great example of of how the wrong person with too much access, where there's just there there is no zero trust, can have devastating consequences. Yeah, and you you always ask yourself, okay, so how do you prevent that in internally? How do you prevent? I was at a bank. I can't identify who they are, but I was working at a bank at the time. I had a senior executive. He was like second to the CEO, and he had all the major whale commercial accounts. And he left in some kind of dust up. It was it was not a pleasant way he left. All of a sudden, there was another commercial bank that was sending notices to all of our top whale customers trying to get them to come over. And it was it was assumed this guy took the crown jewels versus customer information and so forth. 
And we didn't have really DLP at the time. We had to look at USB drives, apparently used three or four USB drives. And we had to do forensic analysis like that literally cost the company millions of dollars because they were able to tie it back to loss on commercial accounts and say, we, we lost this account and this one because of that data breach, because of this guy's stealing that information. So yeah, like you're saying in the classified world, it has real world life and death consequences where in the business world, you don't consider it life and death, but really when all your revenue walks out the door is life and death of the company. And I want to throw a curveball on you too, just the AI piece right now too. So we're thinking about attack vectors. We're thinking about massive amounts of data and then just throw this AI piece into this now and the how easy it is for the good guys and the bad guys to get it. Right. So I haven't done this myself, but I'm sure folks are. You're probably able to scrape the data and figure out what cyber controls these companies have. So you can probably target, start targeting attacks based on, you know, current stack that's in the environment. I just think that this whole, this throws a whole new wrinkle into the, into what's going to be needed to really have robust defense. And it's going to make for a more rigorous standard of zero trust. It's even more important with this added ability of a language learning big data app that can really see exactly from an open source perspective, what companies are using to defend their cyber infrastructure. Yeah. And then who's putting sensitive information in things like chat GPT and wanting to write a form. I've used it many times and I use it with a podcast description. I used it for the intro, really powerful tool set, some limitations. I caught my sophomore in college son using it for Java programming. And I was telling him that's cheap. And he says, no, I'm just looking up the code on what's the standards and how to write the syntax. I said, that's what you have Google for. What do you need ChatGPT for? So it, it's interesting how they're starting to use those different tool sets. You almost can't stop them. Uh, from that's right. Then the danger too is the hallucination aspects, right? So 95% correct. And then a hallucination is when it's not. And it's a, it's using that human-like thinking, as folks say, to be able to extrapolate or interpolate to the next stage. That's pretty serious if it's something that's a critical infrastructure or in a healthcare type situation. Like you don't, we don't want the, what we, what people are calling the smartest computer in the world, giving you really bad advice on something. And I think that's something that we, frankly, it's something that we're looking at. We have to make adjudications on URLs and making sure at the browser level, making sure that this is a good call. We do have AI and ML built in, but we want to be cautious that it's not basically creating something that's causing more inaccuracies. And so I think it's something that the industry is going to be really keeping a close eye on. I do think it has a lot of positive benefit, but it definitely goes back to (laughs) even more of a need to really have all those principles of zero trust in your environment. Yeah. And, and I think you can, I would, on like one of the first shows I did, it was about protecting your AI from getting bullied. Right. Mm-hmm. Josh Neal, who is a PhD data scientist who works, one of the data scientists at Securonix, he was saying how you can manipulate the data models. You can teach it that four plus three is actually 12 because you give it enough data sets that yeah. can override its actual internal logic. Now we had examples of AI that became racist. People were putting racist comments into it. All of a sudden the bot turned racist and he started spewing stuff out. So my question is, how do you prevent some of the manipulation of it. I could see in the future, someone says, we're going to, we have to interview these 20 people. We're going to have this bot do it. And it's going to determine yeah. on the next level of the job and so forth. And then how do you prevent some of these biases and so forth? So I think we're in, we're in a dangerous time with it. 
from my perspective, over at Deep Seas, we do 24 by 7 managed detection and response, right? So 24 by 7, we're monitoring your EDR products, we're monitoring your NIDs, your network intrusion detection and log systems, and we respond. That's one of our big benefits, as well as very smart consultants that help drive and put this into your organization. But once again, when we have alerts from endpoints that come in, they're somewhat cryptic. It says, okay, there's lateral movement that went here and there. Now, granted, you would try in the past, correlate that to a SIM to see if that happened somewhere else and so forth, because a cybersecurity person does not want to sit here and just do individual detects. Like this event went off. We want to be able to have a much larger understanding of the situation, saying these 50 alerts have gone off for this traffic between these hosts, and they've never talked to each other ever before. That's anomalous. I don't know why it's doing that. That's yeah. a, Why is it doing RDP out to the internet? That's anomalous. That's not right. Normally, a printer going RDP out to the internet wouldn't throw any bells and whistles off, right? It's You're not looking at the context. That's a device that shouldn't be able to support that protocol, but somehow is doing that. Yeah. And I think machine learning and AI is going to help us at least go through the sea of that data and combine actual alert data with activity information. And then we can sit back and say, okay, that's unusual. That shouldn't be happening. People shouldn't be VPN in at three in the morning and going toward domain controller. That's unusual. Stop that. Imagine my knowledge, my own environment, but infuse that into an AI type structure in which it can make some of those decisions. And you just hit the autopilot, so to speak, when you go when you go out for the day or something like that. Is that kind of how you see it developing? Or? Yeah, no, I think it's just, I think it's going to get harder to find anomalous alerts is the way I'm thinking about this, right? Is I really think that it's going to, certainly from, I think the AI will make the threat, we're already seeing the AI is making the threat actors, the, even if even the sophistication of phishing emails, the sophistication of phishing emails is much greater than it used to be. The sophistication of credit theft attacks, and you're seeing elements of that. There's obviously targeting that's going on because we know that these folks, they're not just going after CEO of excess company. They're going after CEO of 5,000 companies because they know that they're going to get hits. It's a numbers game for them. But even the stuff that we've been seeing with items and artifacts that go into isolation, it's like really sophisticated, multi-obfuscation. There's a knowledge of the person that they're targeting. That's that. I think there, there has to be some greater deep learning type activity going on to be able to do that at scale. So it's definitely being used and going to be tougher for us. But I I love that you brought up what you all are doing at Deep Seas. And I think, Josh, as we've talked about, at Conceal, we're really focused upon supporting the service providers out there. The Fortune 100, as we both know, we've both spent a lot of time with them. They have pretty deep pockets. They're still constantly under attack, but they have the staff and the resources to defend against these threats. What I think about zero trust and where we are and kind of the implementation cycle. There's tens of thousands of companies in the United States, hundreds of thousands of companies globally that are under attack, may not even know it because they don't have the tooling. They don't have a deep seats that's watching those alerts for them. And this is really a passion project for us at Conceal to provide a affordable solution, a very effective solution to those folks that may not be able to afford other tools and really to protect them at that browser from that browser threat. Yeah. So tell me this. So how would I deploy conceal in an organization? Say I'm mid-market, replace my browsers, I take it? My wouldn't you? No, it's an extension. It's an extension. So there's no need to replace the browser, work with any Chromium-based browser. We push out through the app store, through RM, through GPO. Super easy to deploy, runs in the background. And I think there's been some 
misconceptions around around this a little bit. There's been companies in the past, and they still exist, where this concept of RBI. Conceal RBI is a little bit of a bad word for us because it has connotations of latency and connotations of high cost. What is that for, RBI? Uh, remote browser interface. So you're basically, think VDI, you're operating in the cloud all the time, right? You're not operating the local network. It's in a cloud container, which obviously has its own issues from a cost perspective because your compute cost is going way up whenever you, you implement that. And it's also hard, it's also challenging to implement in an environment. So for us, we only put someone in isolation when it's potentially suspicious, malicious, or unknown. And we're not, they can hang out there for a little bit, but the idea is not to do your daily workflow in there. If it's a benign website or benign URL, they're just going as they normally would go. So we've reduced the latency piece. The compute cost stays down because you're only in isolation when there's a potential problem. And most importantly, we talked about the baseline and anomalies. The telemetry is going back to the software service provider. From our perspective, if someone goes to, someone's going to isolation a lot, you either have a problem with your network setup or with the user, which can be addressed, right? If someone's going to isolation only a little bit, means you probably have a pretty good stack. The user maybe is getting some sophisticated attacks, especially if you can see a trend there with multiple users going. But that isolation is a great way for that telemetry of the isolation is a great way to identify anomalies. I think it's as effective as anything else that you could have out there. And it also, the way we think about this is, it sits between security awareness and EDR. So it's a preventative approach. You and I spent a lot of time in security awareness, amazing tool, essential tool, but no matter how well-trained folks are, they're going to click on bad things. And I think having that insurance policy in between is critical for companies. Yeah. Let me just ask some questions here. So you would isolate. So you, I would, I go to a bad site and you said mm-hmm. it contains, right? So it contains, so does it contain, it prevents me from browsing at that point and that would have remediation. How does it, how, what's the user? Experience? There's different, there's different ways that we can set this up with policy on the dashboard. You can totally block, you can whitelist and blacklist. We can totally block if you want to do that, right? Based on domain. But most, what we see with most users is, or most clients is, If it's potentially malicious, we're going to give them a kind of a a score chart of how bad that threat potentially is. If if the company is okay with this on policy, we will allow them to then go to that site and to browse in a a containerized cloud environment where it can do very little harm to the machine or the network. Now, if there's cred theft associated with it, which we're seeing a lot of, you go to a site now you're opening up, uh, they want you to open up a document, they're prompting you for username and password. What we do at that point is, this is where we are using computer vision AI. We lock that down so they can't enter the credentials at all. And I think that's the piece that's really interesting for us is we're able to see and unpack the way that a threat actor is moving these sorts of these items through an environment. And it can be really devastating if you don't have those layers of protection to stop it. So let me ask, so, if there's stolen credentials, it will prevent me from putting that into the form where it's asked. That's right. It, it just, it literally reads out. And so you can't even put in your username and password. And that's something that's really difficult to do unless you have that browser extension technology. Yeah. I'll give you another great example that we're, we're launching here very soon. So are, are you aware that 30 states have banned TikTok? I didn't know about the states. I know federally we were trying to do it, right? So the state... So- 
30 states have now banned it. I was just on with one of our advisors, Governor Hogan, former governor of Maryland. Yesterday, we, we had did an interview. His, uh, he was the first one to do it. And I, I know that some people have different opinions on this. I know that lots of folks like, like TikTok, but I think it is undisputed that the tracking mechanisms that they have are, are very intrusive. There's been stuff with what they've done with journalists and all sorts of things here. I, I think certainly in a government environment, if what folks want to do in their personal time is great, but in a government environment, I can clearly see why this is probably a step that we need to take. It's one thing to blacklist TikTok.com. It's a whole different thing. Those videos are embedded in all sorts of other sites. Yeah. And so if you truly want to ban it, you have to have some control at the browser level. And that's another great application that we're seeing with our extension is you can really get very granular with what you want to do on the policy side. So I could say organizationally block all TikTok. Now, what's the difference between that and a proxy server, like a Zscaler? Is that sort of a different solution, different make? Or So there's a couple of pieces. There, there are definite similarities, but I would say that your implementation cost and the technical lift with, with the company like you just mentioned, it's pretty expensive and tough. You know, to be able to do that at a state level with, let's just say, 500,000 endpoints is going to be significantly more expensive and could be less effective too, because it, you don't have a gran the granular browser control, could be less effective and more expensive. And so it's, it's one way to approach it. We just feel like we can get to more clients, get to some of those smaller clients, more budget constrained clients with our approach. I think it's probably better too, as well. And just from a technical perspective, you look at a proxy has to deal with 80, 90% encrypted traffic nowadays. And so you're talking about it has to pull that stream apart, initiate another connection outbound, and has to do a man in the middle and try and do SSL decrypt in order to see if that's malicious. So doing that is much more technically difficult. It breaks a lot of things, especially if you don't have your certificates run. But if you're doing it at the browser level, which that's where the encryption is happening at the browser level, when it does that SSL connection over, well, that TLS connection over, it just seems like you're getting it at the point where the encryption is not a problem like it is from a proxy technology perspective. Is that the right, right. Way to view it? Yeah, no, I think that's right on. And tell me a little bit about your customer base. How, what, how are they using it? Is, is this mostly defense industry? Is it financial services? How many? What, what is uh, we have those, but I think one of the things that we've seen, especially as we've gotten into this year, is that we're now approaching over 100 service providers globally, about a million endpoints globally. So we're seeing the MSSP space, the MSP space. I think a couple of things there as being an executive in this community, it's hard to find things that are necessarily like accretive as a service provider. Companies, you have to pick what you're going to pull into your stack because companies have limited budgets. But if you can find something that truly prevents a ransomware or credit theft attack at a great price point, at that great monthly price point, then it's, it tends to be almost a no-brainer. And so we're really focused on the, on the MSSP community as well as the MSP community. We didn't have, for example, we didn't have a booth at Black Hat I'm sorry, a booth at RSA, but we did have a big booth at Kaseya, which is the same week as as, as RSA. I, I love the MSP community. I think that they are on the forefront of protecting the smallest businesses in America. Businesses that if they get hit with ransomware, they're going out. They're 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 shutting their doors. There's no alternative. It's the folks that can't afford cyber insurance right now because that's gotten really cost prohibitive. So we. we 
run into a few that can't even get insurance because they can't attest to certain controls that are in place. And so they're, it's almost trying to get liability insurance after Katrina hit New Orleans from trying to, and then all of a sudden it's difficult. Insurability is becoming a hot issue in the topic. How do I ensure that? And I think your solution addresses that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I truly believe that this is just easy to implement. It gives you that that telemetry that something is wrong here and allows you, it allows the, when a user makes a mistake, it's not going to be a catastrophic mistake, which is, I think, critical. And I think the traditional model is shifting. It used to be, we thought about customers, you put an intrusion detection sensor in, you do logging, you do EDR. Problem with NIDS is 80% of the traffic now is encrypted. So network intrusion detection systems are seeing 70, 80% encrypted traffic. Now you can still glean information from it and do some IOCs based on some header information, but it's very limited because now you can't see payloads because they're in, they're encrypted. And I think there just a paradigm shift is needed, especially for the middle market of players there. If you have something that's browser-based that we know 90, 95 most percent of most applications are going to be coming over the browser, especially cloud SaaS-based applications. It only makes sense because in that SaaS world, I really can't control anything that SaaS provider runs in that browser. I can have a proxy server and filter out some bad JavaScript that hits a certain level, but I really don't have granularity that I need in, in that space. I think of even what Microsoft does or some of the, the SEGs do, right? Sure, you can URL rewrite, but it's only an email. Being able to do this across all applications is, I think, critical. I mean, we saw the Uber pack was through WhatsApp. I'm sure you've been on enough client sites to see the unauthorized installation of Slack is ubiquitous. And if we don't think that threat actors know about that, then I think we're deluding ourselves. Same with LinkedIn. I've personally gotten cred theft um, attacks through LinkedIn. It's it's across all these applications. I'm sure there's ones that I don't even know about that folks are using. But from our perspective, it's, if it's HTTP based, we're going to be on top of it. And we're continuing to get our engine smarter and smarter to be able to see these, these vectors and really at the edge and from a, a zero day perspective too. I think that's interesting because that's a vector that's vulnerable right now. Applications that use HTTP, they're able to, they're not coming, like you're saying, they're not coming through email. So email, as said, could rewrite the URLs. But this is traffic in apps that aren't fit in that normal enterprise model. So how do you do this? You're actually relying on the EDR if something malicious comes through to hit. And nine times out of 10, it's not going to see this anyway. Signature-based EDR, it's a post-bang remediation, right? And I think it's essential. I'm not saying it's not essential, but I'm just saying that I feel like as a community, there's there's a piece that we're missing in between here. And hey, if you have a full-on SE solution and you can afford that, hey, maybe you have it covered, but the vast majority of clients that we talk to can't afford that. And so there's, the, I think we help to really fill that gap. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, now I take it, the policy-based piece of this, like if I was to deploy conceal into my my browsers, I still have a centralized portal that I would create yeah. policies for. And so I could say, allow WhatsApp or allow this. How granular is it? Is it per Super app? Super granular. Yeah, ju- just you can, you, can, you, can, you can whitelist and blacklist just like you would on any sort of swig or sag. It's very granular. Okay, and mobile device support, like iPhone? That's a great question. <laughs> We are working on it. I'd love to get your take on this, but if folks ask about it, I think that we could all agree that 
when an attack comes through a mobile device, especially like iOS, you have some added layers of protection there. Cred theft is cred theft and it's going to, you're screwed. But if it's, if it's, if it's just a malicious website, it's recoverable. It may not be recoverable on a corporate machine. And so we're thinking about it. For us, it's really important to have a great user experience. The last thing we want to do, and going back to what I was saying about the RBI being a bad word, we don't want to induce latency. We don't want we don't want the users to have a bad experience. We don't we of course we want that enterprise to be protected, but we don't want to slow down the daily workflow. Uh, we had some concerns about on on a mobile device that that user experience, and so we're taking that a little bit slower. But I'd love to get your sense on with your clients how important that is. Yeah, it depends on the field. I have one is, for instance, a shipping company, and they use iPads to do all their inventory, all the things that come off. So iPads are a big distribution. So they're asking for EDR products that run on iPads, like a CrowdStrike on an iPad. It's not very effective, CrowdStrike on an iPad. I think it does have a very rudimentary capability. Some of the ED- other EDRs don't support it at all. Yeah, you're being asked to opine on how do I do security on these iPads? How do I ensure availability? And in many ways, it's just not that easy in order to come. And I think it was, if we're browser-based, especially with the moving of SaaS, it just makes sense to, to focus on that area. I could see before where it was internal IT departments and you had files on file servers and everything was inside where you'd want to focus on the OS and what files are being written to it, which files you're downloading from SharePoint, all that kind of stuff. But when everything is just moved to the browser, including O365, I, I update PowerPoint decks or stuff like that through the O365 browser. I can have the full access to the application. I don't have to launch the local one. So I think there's going to be a move towards more of that cloud app. You seem to be positioned right to be at that gateway for it. Right? Yeah, no, I think that there's a really an unlimited amount of use cases here. And we want to focus on First of all, the areas with the largest vulnerabilities, but obviously just focused on what the customer demand really is for it. So it's exciting. And so what are coming your your customers asking now from a roadmap perspective? Hey, this kind of feature and how what do you have coming up in the future that we should all know about? Yeah, I think there's some interesting things. Uh, first of all, you know, the open API framework is really important to us. We're just, I think it, if it's, it may be on LinkedIn as we speak, but we just built an integration with Devo. We have an integration with Splunk, have an integration with Elastic. On that post-processing side, the ability to ingest the telemetry is really important for us. On the pre-processing side, continued investment in our AI technology and ML technology. We, we use those threat intel engines. We think that getting more granular at the file level will be the next stage for us too, because that's different depending on sometimes it can be delivered through a URL, but sometimes it can't. We want to make sure we're, we're really looking at that capability. I think the other piece that's interesting too is how can we save customers on some of their other investments? I won't name the vendors. There, There is stuff around web categorization that we can help with. It makes our engine smarter. We think it saves our customers some, some investment as well and gives them a more comprehensive ap- approach. So those are some of the areas that we're, that our team is really invested and focused on. And you said that you leverage MSPs and MSSPs in order to deliver. Do you have services outside of that or is it really product focused and you have people aligned to those managed services or how does your services model work? I will say, first of all, we have folks who were very early at Dotto that are leading our MSP team, which I think that they're probably one of the gold standards for just success in the community. 
Uh, on the MSP side, right? We have folks with MSSP, significant MSSP experience because it is a little bit different, right? I, I would almost say like MSSPs is a little bit more of an enterprise capture sometimes. Like you guys, it's a longer engagement, whereas MSPs maybe have smaller customers and they, when they roll something out, they just deploy it very quickly. So understanding that nuance, I think is, is really important and we're focused on doing that. And, and yeah, we just, we want to make sure that we're at the, that we have things like multi-tenancy, those important elements that you need to be able to really manage your customers effectively and to understand the pain points that a service provider has. One of the things, and I'll do an open invite here for anyone going to Black Hat, I think this will be the first time that anyone's done this, but we're doing a service provider nexus on August 8th at Black Hat. We have the Las Vegas Mob Museum reserved. It's our biggest party of the year. And we want, there's going to be, we know that there's going to be MSPs and MSSPs there that maybe aren't even attending the show that are just in the local area that, that, that are going to, to have some fun with us. And we just think this is, a, I think it's a bit of an underserved community, Josh, to be frank. I think there needs to be more investment, more attention and paid because I truly believe that what you all are doing at Deep Seas and your peers, the industry, it's critical to protecting these organizations. And we have a 4 million person cyber personnel gap there, there's no way that companies are going to hire this, this expertise themselves. And also, if you're truly looking for anomalies, unless you have a vast sock and vast resources, how can you really look at anomalies when you're just looking at your environment? You guys are looking at thousands of environments. You're going to be much better prepared to really help a customer to say, hey, this doesn't look right. We need to take action on it. And yeah, in our perspective, I have right around 360 customers. So customer base, I have probably a good... 25, 30 that are just the big enterprises. Then you got a lot of mid-market and then just a lot of small customers, right? And what we try to do is provide cybersecurity services with the best tool that are possible. But also that kind of fits in our wheelhouse. We don't want to be open to everything because if they say, here's a Splunk environment, here's a Devo, here's this here, that can you manage this heterogeneous environment? No, we can't really scale very well doing that. So there's a lot of customers we have to say, no, that technology does not match our stack or for us to integrate with that EDR product is going to take a couple months. We'll add it onto the roadmap. We already support six that, that come into our stack and our platform. <laughs> We've created a platform at Deep Seas that allows us to do that. If we, we came from Booz Allen Hamilton, so a big mm -hmm. defense contractor, a lot of these companies hire us because Booz is known for being highly technical and that they have a lot of engineers and a lot of problem solvers. So they hire us to do these mergers and acquisitions. We have one company that's got Sentinel-1 and the other one's got CrowdStrike. And maybe there's another section of it that was a past merger from a year ago that still has Carbon Black. And so they want you to merge all this stuff, but at the same time, monitor it using the same personnel and the same runbooks, but be able to account for all these various different technologies. And I think we want to focus on different areas like, all right, here's my top EDR products, but who am I doing for zero trust? Let me standardize on them and then be able to drive that to our customers and say, yes, I understand you could Google and find all kinds of little cool whiz bang things. However, these are products that we have certified, we worked on, we know that they work, they fit into our overall understanding and delivery of technology. And to be honest, we're not, we're tool agnostic and most of our customers are screaming that they have way too many tools. Yeah. And we're doing tool rationalization projects now. It's, do I really need these four, five, six, eight different tools that kind of do the same thing? 
And I can see where there's going to be a flattening of cybersecurity. Several years ago, that was a, just a ramp up. All right, you need DOP, grab a DOP. You need IDS, you need a SAM. And they just started throwing tech in there. I know because we have had to take over these environments. And we asked, why do we have these 15 tool sets that no one's using? I don't know. Somebody bought it in the past. There's, there's some really good sales guys out there. I used to be one of them. I still am. <laughs> Try and be. But no, it's, and I think there's so many of these like really niche technologies and they, they, hey, they're, it's great. It's great for the industry. They're, I, the problem is that you guys are left to clean it up. And then people, when people move on, it may not be the most effective tool that that organization really needs. So it's tough. Which is why doing the MDR, for instance, we do level level one, tier one, tier two analysis of threats. Mm-hmm. We determine whether it's a true positive or a false positive, and it clears out a lot of the noise. At the same time, I think it's best that our customers come to us for tool analysis. I, I, here's an area of concern that we want to be able to cover. What are y'all using? What are you seeing across the different customers that you have? And that network effect that you were talking about, being able to see... That, that's why, for me, I love being in the position I am, VP of professional services. I could easily be a CISO somewhere and go back into industry. But that is one environment for one specific time period. In this managed service provider role that I'm in now, I get to see 350 customers. I get to meet, have a lot more interactions, but I also get to see what works, what doesn't, what threats are making it through. It's just an enriched amount of information that we have there. And I want to be able to use good providers and tool sets that work. And when Conceal has come up a number of times, we've had a number of people ask us about it. I said, I know the CEO. I don't know the product very well. So I'll get to We're going to change that. We'll get that. We'll get that taken care of. But I think one of the things that I just wanted to just address to you, address to you that you brought up, and I know but we both serve the military, and I think that there's some... So, so it's just something I want, I, I'm very passionate about as well. We moved our company. We were in Virginia. We moved to Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, Georgia is the second largest concentration of military cyber in the country. And it has some great golf courses, but that was, that's an aside. In Augusta too, right? <laughs> I feel like when you, we have these like pockets and it's not just Augusta, we have these pockets of, I think, really great concentrations throughout the United States. Now people know about, of course, the Bay Area. They know about Austin, Texas. Uh, those places are going to do just fine. We're, I'm doing this podcast from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I know you live here too. And this is a there's a great ecosystem, business ecosystem here, great educational system. And I think that we need more investment. And I would what I would say is like some of these secondary markets I need to encourage our young people in college to to get, or even you don't even have to go to college, but get the cyber cert- security certifications, get that hands on experience. Because Josh, we're not you and I aren't getting any younger. And we need folks coming in that really have that deep, hands-on technical expertise to be able to combat this threat. I do believe it's a national security imperative. We need to do more on that front. We need more investment in the U.S. and great engineers that can keep us at the cutting edge. And that doesn't always have to be out of Silicon Valley. There's some other amazing areas here where the talent resides. I'll say, and just one more thing in this, you don't have to be a hands-on coder to be in this field. We've built a really strong inside sales cohort in Augusta, folks that had no cybersecurity experience before. And I think it's transformative It's because this is a field that is only growing. It allows them to talk to those customers. A lot of those customers didn't think they could even afford something like Conceal. And so we're really glad that, that we've been able to provide those jobs and that opportunity for a lifetime of employment. 
No, absolutely. I think that's great. I think some of the benefit, like deep seas, 21% of us are military intelligence background. And that's awesome. You ask yourself, okay, that's great. So you're helping veterans and all. No, there's a reason for it. The veterans have a mission focus. So when we're involved in clients and so forth, it's we're all in, we're there at two, three in the morning because that's how we grew up. That's what the military taught us is mission first and to be there for our customers. And they see that. They see our response and how it's different than some of our competitors and so forth because of that military intelligence background. Yeah. You're saying the last show I just did with Steve Cobb, who's the CISO of Security Scorecard. He's also a coach on the U.S. cyber teams. So it was really interesting talking to him. Apparently, I'm too old to be on the U.S. cybersecurity teams. You got to be less than 25 years old. So I'm a little bit older than that. But we went through several of the different job functions. Yes, I'm hardcore technical cyber, and I came up through IT and engineering, and, and my degree is from Tulane in computer science and so forth. But a lot of fields don't require that anymore. GRC roles, for instance, just require a risk management control focus. We need GRC people. There's all kinds of different roles in cybersecurity where there's this fake premise that says that you have to be some genius in math and you got to know calculus three and all to do cybersecurity. And it could be further from the truth. And I think we have an opportunity to bring really smart people into this field. If we could just explain what each of these roles in these positions look like, what, what are your skills that map to it? Because it frees us technical people. We'd much rather be on the battlefield. We, we'd much rather fight the attackers and do an incident response and chasing them down. I, I don't want to do GRC work. I don't want to do risk management. I've done it before. But I need really good people to do it because it's a team effort. And without it, we're all going to fail. Yeah. I, just to add on to that, I think that there's also some misconceptions, even at the university level. I was with a gentleman today, graduated from SC school, SEC school not too long ago. He was an MIS major. And what he was saying is that there's the holy grail of what they're being taught is that you go be a PM at Microsoft or Google. It's not that you can come out and get be part of a startup. And I think that they're, I think we're missing the boat there because we would want people that have gotten a little bit of a higher education cyber experience that we could slot into our dev teams. But I think that there's maybe that we need to relook at what's being taught at some of these institutions of higher learning because it needs to be more practical to the real threats that we're facing. I don't know the, all the answers to that, but I just try and get these nuggets and I know that we're going to have some talent gaps. We, we need to address it because our adversaries are all over it. They definitely are looking at ways to exploit. Unfortunately, we ran out of time, Gordon. I tell you, it goes fast, doesn't it? You sit it's great. And all of a sudden you look at the timer and you go, golly, uh, it's, it's about that time. And I really appreciate you being on the show. I think you've, uh, Conceal's got a great capability there. I'm glad to see that you're driving change in the organization and helping people out. And I'm excited to learn more about it and definitely want to stay tuned. I really appreciate having you. And I want to thank you for your service. I'm Navy guy, Naval Academy. That's, that's impressive. I know that going to those academies are, are no joke. And I've seen some of the videos on what you all had to go through and so forth. So I really appreciate you. I appreciate the kind words, Josh. Pleasure to be with you and uh, and look forward to doing it again. I know we'll be in touch here soon. Thanks so much. Well, and you should have told me you were in Charlotte. We could have had a drink last time. I know, I know. <laughs> Next time. All right, brother. Have a good one. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Appreciate it. Good stuff. Now, don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.